0: Welcome to the Vegetable Beat. My name is Ben Phillips, and I work with Michigan State University Extension.
1: And my name is Natalie Hoytel. I work with the University of Minnesota Extension. How are we doing this, Natalie? So this podcast is brought to you by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. It was kickstarted by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. And our license for Transistor is held by the University of Minnesota Extension.
0: And you can listen to this episode and all the rest at glveg.net slash listen. Enjoy the show. Hi, Ben. Hey, Natalie.
1: <laughs> How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing real good. Great. How about you?
1: Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm excited to share this next episode. Um, so after last week's episode or the the last, um, installment of this mini series, um, we were kind of talking at the end about how do we, how do we achieve these goals of building organic matter without way over fertilizing our soils. And so I reached out to my colleague, Nick, who studies soil formation and just went into a really kind of nerdy deep dive about how we build organic matter in our soils, um, the different ways to do that, the different time scales at which that happens. Um, so I'm excited to share it with you.
2: So my name is Nick Jelinski. I'm an associate professor um, in the department of soil, water, and climate at the university of Minnesota. And, uh, I am specifically within the discipline of soil science. My sub-discipline is pedology. And so um, pedology is basically the um, the study of how soils form, understanding why they look the way they do and how their properties are distributed. So I love maps and I spend a lot of time looking at maps and thinking about maps. And um, the interesting thing about soils too, is that Um, it's a three-dimensional thing, right? So it's not as simple as making a map uh, like we'd normally make maps that represent in two dimensions because there's also depth to think of in soil. So we do a lot, uh, spend a lot of time understanding how those properties vary like in space, how they vary with depth, and then with soil formation, understanding how they vary with time. And by that, what I mean is not necessarily... Um, even human timescales, but timescales of soil formation, which can be anywhere from you know there, there are processes that happen in soil on the order of days, weeks, months, years. but a lot of the soil forming processes are happening over centuries, millennia, 10,000 years, 100,000 years. So um, think about a lot of different timescales. and obviously um, linking that information to management, we're thinking about really short timescales and how those impact soil properties.
1: So that was a great introduction, thank you. So um, the main thing that I wanted to talk to you about was this idea that we are often trying to change our soils very quickly by increasing our organic matter, Um, and I think in part that's messaging from people like me in extension, um, celebrity farmers on Instagram. It's kind of coming from all over that, like in order to be resilient, we have to increase the organic matter of our soil because it. Organic matter holds onto water and nutrients. And so often that comes through practices like cover crops, but it also often, especially on smaller farms where this is more feasible, comes through like really heavy applications of compost and manure. So I am hoping in this episode to really talk about that process of building up organic matter. Um, So just to start, a question that I often get in extension is what is the ideal organic matter in my soil? What should I be shooting for? (laughs) And the answer is always, it depends, which is never a very satisfying answer. So I'm hoping you can give a little bit more nuance to that answer. Like, why does it depend? Why do soils differ in like the amount of organic matter they might be able to hold over time?
2: Uh, you have probably picked the worst person to ask that question
1: because
2: <laughs> this is what I love to talk about. So,
1: okay.
2: uh, I've got a very, uh, <laughs> I've got a lot of uh, depth to my answer. So bear with me if I go down a few rabbit holes here. Um, but what I would say is what, to start with, you know, in the research that I do teaching that I do, we think about soil as, um, I think about soils as individuals. So soil is a continuum across the landscape, right? It's a blanket of um, living sediment essentially across the earth's surface. Um, but at the same time, there are some discrete ways that we can, you know, like when we make a soil map, we say, okay, this is this soil type, this is that soil type, we draw a line between them. Um, but in reality, it's more of a gradient, right? But there are definitely differences between soils at multiple scales. So at a field scale, you know, you've got um, individual bodies of soil that are going to behave differently based on the topography or, you know, the wetness, whatever it is. Um, And then certainly as you get up to a county scale or a state scale or continental scale, there's a lot of different factors that come into play that have influenced um, how that soil has formed. So I view every soil as sort of like an individual and it's an individual and a gradient, just like humans are individuals and gradients. You know, we're more like our immediate family members and then we're a little bit less like our distant family members. And then, right. And then the human family going all the way back, tracing our ancestors all the way back to some common ancestors. So soils, you know, are going to be more similar, um, the closer they are together and the more they share common factors, so, when it comes to organic matter in soils, if we just think about like natural processes that have contributed organic matter to soil, um, there is a huge variation, right? So, one, one thing maybe that's similar to, to the question that you said you get quite a bit is that um, a lot of times people ask me like, um, you know, how high should organic matter be in a soil? And I'm like, well, every soil is unique. So, um there's not a should there, right? Soils are what they are, just as humans are what they are, right? It's like asking like, how tall should somebody be, right? (laughs) It depends on the person, they are what they are. So soils are the same way. So I think one of the things that we can do to sort of escape this trap is to say, let's stop saying how much should a soil have, and let's think about instead, let's understand a soil as an individual and how it got to be the way that it was and its specific properties. So if we think about organic matter, there's basically um, a few main factors that have Uh, led to the amount of organic matter that was in that soil that formed naturally prior to human influence. So especially in the United States, we sort of have a bit uh, more of a benchmark on this than we do maybe in Europe or in Southeast Asia or in Africa or in the Middle East, where we've got agricultural soils that have been used for millennia, that you really can't separate out the human influence. It's harder to separate out the human influence from the natural influence. In the United States, because we do have such a recent um, land use, land cover change post-European settlement, we can actually see the widespread impacts of agriculture on sort of overprinted on the natural variability in soils. So, um, so if we think about just like natural soil formation in the absence of humans, the main things that influence the amount of organic matter that goes into a soil are the climate. So how um, warm or cold the climate is or wet or dry the climate is, that's a main, that's a huge um, impact. Um, The other impact is sort of related to the particle size of the soil. So if it's a sandy soil or a clay soil um, that actually really matters. And the third, I would say more minor impact is the, the type of, um, the type of organic matter that's going into the soil. Some organic matter is decomposed more quickly. Others is decomposed more slowly. And so that matters a little bit. I would say if we're looking at our range of soils and understanding how certain soils became what they are, um, the, the main factors are going to be, um, climate primarily, and then texture secondarily. Um, And so climate is important because the way that I've used soil carbon is it's, it is a bank, right? It's not just what goes in. It's a two-way street. So there's carbon that goes in. And I should say also, I'm using the terms organic matter and carbon um, interchangeably here. Organic matter is about half carbon. So that's why I use them interchangeably. So, you know, if, if you have a soil that's about, 6% 6% organic matter, it's probably approximately 3% carbon, you know? So there's approximately, right? So I'm mean, going to use them interchangeably. It's the same thing. Anyway, it's driven by organic materials being contributed to the soil. So that's the flow in. So when any, any time, um, uh, certainly anytime that plants die and their, their tissues are contributed to the soil, um, that's organic matter going in, but also plants contribute organic matter going, uh, into the soil when they're living, um, because they are sloughing, like they're, you know, the root caps are sloughing, they're putting out dissolved organic compounds. There's a lot of things happening while they're living as well. So it's both plants living and dying that are contributing that organic matter to the soil. But, um, those dead plant tissues are the really the, the big stock of organic matter and carbon that's going to end up, uh, building soil organic matter. So, um, depending on the climate that you have, that stock of essentially um, my, microbial food goes away quicker or slower. So in a cold environment, um, you know, and the other, the other analogy is just to think about how we preserve food in our lives, right? So if I make dinner um, and I put it in the freezer, it's going to last for a long time. So if I'm in a cold climate, And I'm thinking here, you know, if we're talking about Midwest, we're certainly in a colder climate when it comes to agriculture, right? Like around the world, we have a colder climate here in Minnesota than a lot of other places in the world. So we tend to have higher levels of organic matter in general. Um, there's a lot of other factors that play into it, but just in like a global basis, if we look at the amount of organic matter, amount of organic carbon in soils in Minnesota and the upper Midwest where we're colder, we tend to have more organic matter. And it's simply because the microbes are working a bit slower because we're colder most of the time. Um, so so that's the two-way street is how much goes in and then how much are the microbes burning off through respiration. And interestingly, it almost matters more that output is is almost more important because, for example, um, some of the highest, some of the places where soil carbon is the highest in the world, is in is in places that have low plant productivity. So um, the Arctic, for example, the Arctic tundra. There's a lot of carbon locked up in the Arctic tundra. So you're talking about short tundra plants that grow for three months out of the year, but because the respiration, because the microbes are working so slowly because the growing season is so short and it's so cold, a lot of that carbon gets stored in the bank. So, so, um, you know, like tundra soils, Arctic soils are almost, they're like thrifty savers, right? They don't make a lot of money. There's not a lot of money coming in, but man, they are eating bread and peanut butter and jelly, <laughs> rice and beans, right? And they, they don't go out much. They don't buy fancy cars and they're storing all that carbon. In, in warmer places, Southeastern United States, subtropics, tropics, and I'm speaking generally, of course, there's a lot of variability, but mm-hmm generally speaking in the world um, the microbes can work all year round right so they they can grow all year round they can work all year round they can decompose all year round and so even though places like tropical rainforests for example there's a lot of plant biomass there's a lot of organic matter going into those soils but the microbes are working really hard all year round to decompose that organic matter so in the end there's not as much stored in the bank so those warmer, Moister soils are are like um, they're like big spenders, right? They make a million dollars, but they spend you know nine hundred and ninety nine thousand of that million dollars, and so there's not a lot left in the bank. So climate on a global scale is super important. On a local scale, climate's also important, um, sort of in the microclimate sense. So if you're looking at a field, for example. The lower parts of the field where it's wetter are going to have more uh, organic matter than the higher parts of the field where it's drier. That's also a climate effect, but it's not usually related to temperature at the field scale, it's actually related to soil wetness. So it's the same principle there, but instead of microbes working faster or slower based on the temperature, that's an oxygen thing. So wherever the soil is wetter, you're going to have less oxygen available in the soil. And that means that microbes are going to work slower. They're still working, but they're working much slower because the soil is anaerobic. So so climate is sort of this like broad annual average temperature thing on a global scale. And then at local scales, it's really a wetness thing. And so all, be, all else being equal, colder, wetter soils are going to have more organic matter than warmer, drier soils. Um, and a lot of that is due to that out, the out path from the soil, which is the micro- microbes and how hard they're working. So in a natural sense, I mean, we have so much variability in carbon and organic matter in soil, because we've got like you know, we can find soils where the natural soil organic matter content might be half a percent in, in the top, right? Or we have soils where the natural soil organic matter content might be 90%, like in a peat bog in northern Minnesota, okay. right? So, that, that, and so again, to the point, it's hard to ask that question What is the ideal amount of organic matter? How much organic matter should my soil have? Because soils are individuals and we have this huge range and there's nothing wrong in a natural sense. There's nothing wrong with a soil that has, half a percent organic matter that's developed naturally or our soil that has 90% of organic matter that's developed naturally. They're just different. They've just developed under different situations. So that's sort of like, when I think about management impacts on soil, I think about first, like, what are the bones? What is this, the natural state of that soil and how has management overlain on top of that? I think that helps us think about our expectations about how much organic matter should there be, or how fast can you push organic matter up because there might be really different situations that that people are working with Sorry, I told you a lot of rabbit holes.
1: <laughs> no, that was perfect. Thank you um, okay, I have three follow- up questions based on your three factors um, so so the first factor is like just the climate and your, the place where you live um, so I'm curious some people talk about like, at least in the U S like pre-colonization soil organic matter levels as being kind of this benchmark. Um, and of course those soils were managed before Europeans (laughs) came here, um, but managed differently. And so does that feel like a, a valuable number to you? Or is that just like it, if they were managed differently, it's a different type of ecosystem. So, so maybe that's not a perfect goal. What
2: are your thoughts on that? Um, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, so you made a lot of really good points there. I do think that it is useful in the sense that we don't really have any other benchmarks. And we know that, um, you know, certainly there were places um, where there was a lot of agricultural activity happening pre-colonization, right? And so so we so humans have been modifying soils in the United States and in, in North America for millennia. Um, but the scale at which we modify soils now Is very different, right? Like we, a lot of, we have a lot of land in agricultural production with very intensive management and inputs. And although that has happened for a long time, um, the scale at which it is happening now is much different. So we don't really have any other benchmarks besides that pre-colonization, pre-settlement, soil organic carbon. And, and that's why I'm trying to estimate that. And there's a lot of research, you know, that's gone into trying to look at, you know, what what would might that have been, how has it changed? And understanding that gives us one really valuable benchmark for understanding how soils may have changed um, since that time, right? Mm-hmm. One way or another. And I would say that we don't really have any other benchmarks to lean on. So I would say that that's probably the most important one.
1: Okay, is that a realistic goal though? Like, say, one landscape was like a prairie ecosystem, and now it's a farm. <laughs> like, no,
2: I think that's that interesting. Well, I think that's a really interesting point. You know, is it is it realistic? Well, I mean, it's realistic in the sense that there were ecosystems, um, native plant communities that formed the soils that we now use. And those plant communities fit into the climate and environmental factors in that area in that time. So if we think about like, what is something to, to aim for? Well, that's something that, that fit in very well with the environmental factors that were in, Mm -hmm. in place. And so, yeah, our environment's changing, but I think those benchmarks are still super important. And I think they're, um, they remain realistic goals because that, that's what was basically, uh, there before really, um, dramatically changing the land cover and land use and uh plant inputs and the types of plants that are grown etc so yeah i i I guess sorry to boil down my comments i do think those pre-settlement pre-colonization benchmarks are important Um, and like i said part of it's just because they're they're what we have Um, but the other part is that i i do think they're realistic for that place and time and they remain relevant certainly
1: okay great um so one of the other factors I think this was a third factor was that different types of organic matter are more stable than others maybe break down more quickly um can you talk about that in the context of maybe things that we're doing to increase organic matter on farms so like cover crops versus compost versus like composted manure how might those things break down differently and like have different stability for longer term organic matter inputs.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so from a natural sense, um, if I can you know, think about things that are really different, have really different timeframes in terms of how long they're going to remain in the soil, just in terms of what they are, the identity of these organic molecules. Um, you know, on the one end of the spectrum, you've got things like lignin and cellulose, which are these complex polymers um, lignin, of course, being the major component of woody plant tissues, right? And so like, that's really important because lignin has a complex structure and um, there's a lot of microorganisms that can't really break lignin down. And so there are some microorganisms that are really good at it, like the white rot and brown rot fungi. There's other types of fungi that are really good at it. Um, but then there's there's a lot of microorganisms that are not good at that at all, right? And so for that reason, a, a complex um, molecule like that, it can be broken down. It can be decomposed, but it's going to take a bit longer just because you don't have, um, maybe the same groups, abundance of microbes that are going to be able to start acting on it right away. If you contrast that with, um, a simpler organic molecule that maybe ha- has a, a, a lower carbon to nitrogen ratio. And by that, I mean, um, has a a relatively high amount of nitrogen. So um, organic matter always has a lot more carbon than it does nitrogen and microbes are always fighting for that nitrogen. So if there's not enough nitrogen in the organic matter that they're breaking down, they're going to pull nitrogen from the soil. They're actually going to take nitrogen from the plant available pool in the soil and pull it into their biomass. Um, If there's plenty of nitrogen in the organic matter, they're breaking down, then they're actually going to release nitrogen into the soil because there's enough for them to pull in. And then as the the organic molecule breaks down, that nitrogen gets released in the soil. The excess gets released in the soil. So if we think of something with a, a low carbon to nitrogen ratio, meaning it has a lot of nitrogen relatively speaking and enough for microbes. Um, that's that, those types of molecules are like ice cream to microbes, right? Like they'll eat them and it doesn't matter if you're a bacteria or a fungi or whatever, like let's get to that. Right. It's, it's like, um, being at the, the old country buffet and you know, the, the lignins like the, um, dried, crusty lasagna at the end of the line that nobody's touched for 24 hours. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the, uh, the higher nitrogen stuff, the simpler molecules, that's like the ice cream that everybody's going to have there. Right. And so, um, so, so we have this huge diversity of organic molecules, too many to count, right. And it's, the spectrum is, is huge. And it's those slight differences that can matter in terms of um, how long those molecules might stick around in soils. With our modern understanding, you know, we used to think that there were some some of those molecules that, like, maybe they never really decompose. Like, there's old uh, there's some concepts of um, really large complex molecules that are in soils that that are really really difficult to decompose. I think most of the research now has shown that you know most of the organic molecules in soils are able to be decomposed, it's just a question of how much time it's going to take. So now if we think about those sort of, um, you know, uh, inputs that we might find under natural ecosystems. So, you know, if you've got uh, a forest and mostly woody inputs compared to, you know, a grassland where you might have uh, fine root systems growing all throughout the year. A lot of those fine roots are turning over and dying and sloughing off and things like that. So you have this range of um, molecules that are being put in the soils from a management sense. Um, I think we can sort of, sort of look at it in the same way, right? So things that um, have relatively speaking more nitrogen, meaning a lower carbon to nitrogen ratio, that stuff's going to break down faster um, than stuff that has a higher carbon to nitrogen ratio or, or less nitrogen, relatively speaking, um, that's going to stick around longer. And, you know, one way to think about this would be um, uh, if, you know, I'm sure folks have added like wood chips to a garden or something like that, right? And you can see those wood chips for years going on to the future. And if you add... Um, uh, poultry manure, for example, or, um, or any, anything that's, that's relatively fresh and has a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus, you're going to watch that disappear fairly quickly, right? It's going to get transformed into other organic molecules. And, um, it will, it will start not looking like the way that it was when you put it in there pretty fast. Um, and so, whether or not that is related to the actual amount of carbon in the soil is sort of a separate thing, but in terms of the residence time of the molecules that you're putting in, um, I would say those are that's kind of the spectrum.
1: Okay, so I'm going to give you a scenario. So I was at the MOSES conference a couple of weeks ago, and there was a really great speaker talking about soil fertility and soil health who said that if you are using really good soil health practices like cover crops and reducing tillage, you can realistically expect that your soil organic matter might increase by about 0.1% every year. A lot of vegetable farmers have increased their soil organic matter by like 2-3% over just a couple of years by using heavy compost inputs. And so I'm curious to hear from you what would be the functional difference in a soil or in like the longevity of the organic matter in a situation where someone has primarily used cover crops over time to increase their organic matter slowly versus someone who has increased the organic matter in their soil relatively quickly using heavy compost additions?
2: so I think that's that's a great contrast because. So what we're doing, so when you're bringing in compost, for example, you're you're actively adding large amounts of material to the surface of that soil, and then mixing it in with tillage. Obviously, um, the okay. material that you're adding is like ninety five percent organic matter, right? So compost is is organic matter um, and that's been cured in various ways, right? So you're basically you're you're adding a layer of organic matter, so. In, in soils in pedology parlance that type of uh, compost something we would call a compost is what we would call um, an organic soil material and I want to make a definition here so we make we make a divide approximately in our in understanding natural soils between things that we call organic soil materials and things that we call mineral soil materials all natural soil materials have mineral Stuff in it, sand, silt, and clay, and they have organic matter. But the percentage of those things varies widely, right? So, like I said before, you could have a soil that has half a percent organic matter or less. You could have some soils where most of it is organic matter and there's almost no sand, silt, and clay in there, right? So, we use this cutoff at approximately 30% organic matter. Anything that is 30% organic matter or more, we call an organic soil material. Um, And anything that's less than 30% organic matter, we call a mineral soil material, recognizing that all soil materials have some organic matter and some minerals, but it's just a a quick way to reference those things. So compost, in that sense, we would certainly call an organic soil material. So the way that, so what compost essentially mimics in the natural world, the, the places where we naturally get soil materials that have organic matter that high are peat bogs and wetlands. Okay, so that's the only place where the climate, the environment, is cold enough or wet enough that microbes work slowly in the natural soil to allow organic matter to build up to that extent without decomposing. So when I think about composts from just the perspective of nat, sort of like natural soil development, and um, you know non-human influence soil development, what is really happening is compost is an organic material. It's a very organic matter rich material. And so when we're when we're doing heavy applications of compost, we're essentially just adding a layer of organic material to that soil. So it's not surprising that the organic matter would shoot up mm-hmm. because in the natural world, you know if we've got if we've got a soil that has, let's say, you know 20 centimeters or, or a foot of peat, over maybe a glacial sediments and we measured the organic matter going down with depth, we might have 90% organic matter, 90% organic matter, 90% organic matter going down to a foot. And then when we hit those glacial sediments, we might have half a percent, right? It's all just the way that the soil is stratified and layered. So what we're essentially doing when we're, when we're doing heavy applications of compost, we're just adding a layer of organic materials to the surface. And so it's not surprising that you would see a really rapid jump in the organic matter levels that you're you're measuring because you're adding this really organic rich material to the surface and yes you're mixing it but you know most tillage implements you're not actually mixing it that deep in the sense of you know the full depth of the soil so a lot of that organic material is staying fairly shallow so i think and that's an that example mean
1: That you have to continue that practice in order to maintain that level of organic matter
2: in theory, yes so so in theory to maintain it indefinitely, yes, but I think some of that organic matter it's not like all so, so let's say you added that organic matter one time, right and then you just let it be and you did your thing and you measured organic matter going through time and watched what happened, right So it's sort of like an exponential decline. So you might see um, you might see more rapid declines in the first, Five years or so. And then as you got up to 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, you would still have more organic matter in that soil than you started with. But you're going to get less and less and less and less over time. So, in theory, yes, if you want to maintain the same amount, you're going to have to keep adding. And you're going to hit a point where that's the other thing I think with these expectations for how much should I keep building? Well, there's a point where you're going to hit the limitations of the natural environment or the amendment that you're adding and it's not gonna go up anymore, right? Like you could you could keep adding all you want and um, it's it's not gonna ever be more than the stuff, than the material that you're using as the input to begin with, right? Like that's your absolute cap. But then overlaying on that is the environment. So again, how fast you could add, if you had a, a, a field that was a hill slope, right? And added the same amount of the same input from the summit to the foot slope, to the, to the bottom, you would over time build up a lot more organic matter in that bottom than you would at the top of that hill slope. And again, it's all due to the direction, You know, there's just microbes that are working longer and harder because the soil is gonna be warmer and drier at the top of the hill slope. Um, so yeah, sorry. So in theory, yes. Understanding that the environment matters too. If you wanna maintain that level in a well-drained soil where the microbes are working hard, you're going to have to keep adding that organic matter over time. Um, If we go to the other management sort of practice that you mentioned, which is just, okay, let's say now we're just going to cover crop as our sort of way to increase soil organic matter. So there, I think, you know, the speaker that you mentioned that Moses, I think that, to me sounds just from a, like a, the world of soil sense, you know, setting a goal of 0.1% per year. I mean, that seems pretty realistic. Um, I think, you know, to set expectations higher than that for not bringing in massive imports of organic matter, because you gotta think like cover crops is not the same as compost in that cover crops, you're, you're, You've got a living plant that is adding organic matter to the soil, um, but has a wide range of, of molecules in it that those plant materials are going to start being decomposed. Compost is also cured. And so it's already been through this process of microbial decomposition from the raw material. And so that's going to decompose slower than your cover crops, which are going to have this higher Nitrogen, uh, a carbon nitrogen, oh, sorry, lower n- carbon nitrogen ratio, higher relative amount of nitrogen, they're going to be yummier, right? So, so those, those cover crop residues are going to be a bit yummier than maybe the cured compost. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if the, the um, amount of time it took for those things to break down would be different. And also, you're not adding, in the example of the cover crop, you're not adding like a layer. Of organic materials, right? You just got growing things that are that are eventually going to be incorporated into the soil. So your time to increase the organic matter is going to be much higher for that reason. Um, and you're going to your question of like, is it more sustainable in the long term? Um, boy, that's beyond. I, I don't want to speculate on that. I would ask somebody that does that kind of research. But but I do think just in terms of thinking about the rates of increase, yeah. I mean that makes a lot of sense to me. I think. Um, sometimes I think maybe we expect too much out of a soil um, because remember it's not just the management. If there's one thing that I always try to get through to folks, because I'm, I look at soils from the other way, right? Like I look at the natural soil and then try to understand how the management is overlaying on that. But I think we have a tendency, especially in agriculture, to think our management is the thing, right? Like what we do in management is what makes the soil. And Yes, management has a huge impact on the soil, but you also have a soil that's an individual or a set of soils in your field that are individuals that are their own entities that are what they are and you're sort of interacting with them. But what you're doing just in terms of management is not what makes that soil. There's a lot of other things that are happening there. Um, And again, at a field scale, you could have widely different soils that are gonna react in different ways to the same management. And that's where I think the expectations can get off track because people are maybe expecting that um, be just because it's the same field, it should behave in the same, you know, all the parts of it should behave in the same way. And that may not necessarily be true.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, I, so I, I think that's a good segue into this last question. Um, so I think often we are using organic matter as like the Measure of whether our soil is healthy or not. Um, and I know we've had these conversations about, like, I'm always thinking more about the chemical properties of soil and organic matter. And you're, you've kind of framed soil health as broader than that, looking at things like bulk density and other physical soil characteristics. So um, I was curious just to see if you had any other metrics that people could be thinking about as they're looking at the health of their soil over time. Um, Beyond just using organic matter as like the primary proxy for soil health.
2: Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think that's a really good question. And um, I agree. I think our focus has been, and for good reason, right? There's a good reason that we're focusing on organic matter. I think, sorry, I'm going to go down another rabbit hole here. <laughs> okay. You can edit me out if you want to. Um, <laughs> I, I think that the, the reason that organic carbon organic matter is so central is because carbon into soil is energy into soil so or, organic carbon is a store of energy you know just the same way that we go to the grocery store and buy food and eat that right like organic matter in soil is food for microbes and so organic matter in soil is what drives the terrestrial food web and the crazy thing about organic matter in soil is that where the energy comes from that organic matter the carbon Actually, originally was carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, right? So plants took that carbon in, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and they used with their photoreceptors and their amazing photosynthetic systems, they used high energy. Uh, uh, particles that are flying from the sun 93 million miles to the earth. And that energy from those particles from the sun is what ends up embodied in the soil organic matter. Like it's just crazy, right? So organic matter going into soil is solar energy stored going into soil. And so the reason the focus is so heavy on organic matter and carbon as the main thing we think about in soil health is because it is true that organic matter, organic carbon is the central store of energy in a soil. And it's what going to be what drives the soil food web. So generally speaking, if you've got more organic matter, more carbon, you've got um, higher microbial biomass, you've got um, a faster functioning of, you know, um, some things you've got, maybe more nutrients and things like that. So we focus on that and there's a reason we do. But I think also to your point, sometimes it can be to a detriment because we don't think about the whole soil system soil is more than just the amount of organic carbon in it you know we've got inorganic uh materials in soil we've got sand silt and clay we've got a lot of nutrients that are inorganic um we've got uh, a structure to soil we've got an architecture, we have pore space and aggregates, right. And all those things together influence the function of a soil. So there's a really great analogy and I'm going to forget the, um, I'm going to, I don't want to misattribute the quote. So I'm going to forget who said this, but this is not my quote. Um, But, but it's that essentially when we, uh, you know, like the way that we measure carbon, a lot of times other nutrients in soil, um, the way that we measure those is we take a soil sample, we dry it, we grind it and we put it in a furnace and burn off the amount of carbon and organic matter. Right. So we get like a, uh, an amount of something that was in there. Um, That's like trying to understand how a house functioned. If you didn't know how a house functioned and you were trying to figure it out, that's like saying, okay, let's uh, let's wreck the house, grind it all up and, and measure how much, uh, I don't know, you know, of something was in there right we missed the whole function of it so Mm -hmm. carbon and organic matter isn't certainly the most important indicator of soil function i I don't want to say that it's not it is certainly and there's a reason that it's central and more carbon more organic matter generally speaking is going to be associated with higher capacity for functioning in that soil but it's not the only thing because soils are a whole system that has a physical, chemical, biological components to it. And so if we think about the other things that might be really important besides just understanding carbon, um, I think a lot about soil architecture. So uh, soil structure aggregation, super important because that's related to how susceptible a soil is to erosion. It's related to aeration. Um how well oxygen can get down to the roots, how quickly is water going to drain. Um, it's related in a lot of ways to um, where microbes, uh, so soil structure and and how microbes are distributed in the soil is also associated with each other. So um, that sort of architecture is really important. And so as an example, you could have two soils that have the same amount of carbon or organic matter they might function really differently if their architecture is very different. And you might not be able to know that from the carbon or organic matter alone. Now, on a, from a global perspective, again, like I said, soils that have more carbon or organic matter are more likely to be better aggregated, to have more pore space, etc. But it doesn't mean that every individual that has a higher amount of carbon or organic matter is going to be like that, right? You can still find wide differences in architecture. So I think That architectural piece is really important. Thinking about the soil as a physical piece of architecture and how the management that we do influences that architecture, for better or worse, from an agricultural perspective, that's super important. Um, Nutrients, you know, similar thing, although a lot of times, especially in Inorganic production systems and other systems, um, nutrients are closely tied to the amount of organic matter you have in the soil. So a lot of times there's a correlation there. Not necessarily though, like especially things there's micronutrients and other things mm-hmm. you get into where the the disconnect between the amount of carbon and organic matter in a soil and the amount of that nutrient can start to be pretty disjointed. Um, nitrogen is usually pretty tied to the amount of carbon in a soil, so you know you can kind of um, guess at fertility, uh, nitrogen mm-hmm. fertility based on the amount of organic matter in the soil. But anyway, um, so so there's certainly some disconnects there. Um, we're only just beginning to understand the the full range of the biological community in soils. I mean, literally just with you know, genomics. Now we can sort of break open what has been a really opaque box of who are the microbes that live in soils and what are they doing and when are they doing it? And it's such a dynamic and diverse system that it's, it's very difficult to understand without the tools that we have. So we're just on the verge of really understanding that aspect of it. And so I think a lot of times we're biased to the things that we can measure easily Um, and there's a reason that they're important, but we're missing sometimes this architecture and understanding the biological community. And and we have a lot of knowledge to gain in those areas too. Mm -hmm.
1: Would you say for measuring, like trying to understand that architecture in your soil? I know NRCS has tests that I think most farmers are pretty familiar with, like this lake test and infiltration test. Are those the main things you would recommend people do?
2: Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, the NRCS toolbox is really good for that. So um, definitely um, understanding soil aggregate stability with slaking is one really easy way to look at that. Um, and then infiltration is obviously super important, right? It's an indicator of the architecture and the structure. Um, you know, In theory, if you've got a really compacted soil, you're just not going to have the same infiltration. And, and again, that gets to multiple functions, right? So even infiltration, a lot of times we focus on just infiltration, but if we step back and say, okay, infiltration is really an indicator of the soil architecture and all the other things that happen with that, right? So it's not just how fast water goes into soil, it's how fast oxygen can diffuse down to plant roots, right? And so, so there's a lot of aspects where when we we're we're making these measurements, we're looking at indicators of a whole system. And I think the architecture is a great example of that. And yeah, I would agree that probably infiltration and slake tests are are the easiest to understand um, there and and actually do in the field. Um, There's other things like uh, uh, visually evaluating soil structure and putting that in different classes and looking at um, for example, the the size distribution of different soil aggregates; those are more complex, and we usually need some laboratory methods to do that. Um, but there's other ways that we can look at that too.
1: Okay, great. Well, that was all my questions. Um, thank you so much. Do you ha- is there anything you wanted to say but didn't get a chance to say?
2: No, not at all. I feel like okay. I said too much. I apologize.
1: <laughs> no, that that was great.
2: I uh, I. I sorry, I get sucked down rabbit holes sometimes, but I just, I appreciate, really, I appreciate the opportunity to um, talk soils and specifically to think about how, like I said, management is overlain on these natural factors that have formed the soils that people interact with. And I think shifting our perspective in that way from this really human centered, like what we do is what it is, to what we do has an impact, but it's overlain also on all these environmental factors. I think that gets us to the next level of talking about soil health, thinking about soils as individuals, managing for soil health on a field scale in diverse ways. You know, that's the sort of thing that I think is hopefully the future. And I hope that- Our basic understanding of pedology and just the beauty of soils and and how widely diverse they are around the world is going to be a part, a piece of contributing to that conversation. So anyway, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it.
0: All right, Natalie, that was a great interview. I took two pages of notes on it. (laughs) Uh, We don't have to go through it all. (laughs) <laughs> but, but man, so Nick is a Nick's got away with words, doesn't he?
1: He does, yes. Nick has got like TED talks about soil. He's a, he's a well-practiced um soil enthusiast.
0: One thing I was thinking about was how uh lignin, he he talked about how basically the two things that make organic matter uh, is is lignin, which is mm-hmm. a woody material and cellulose, which is another carbon-rich you know, molecule coming from more of the uh, herbaceous plants. And also yeah. like, I was thinking like, well, what about manure? But what is manure other than just like masticated? It's broken down. It's just, yeah. <laughs> it's just like pre-chewed. <laughs> it's still cellulose and lignin. Yeah. But um it got me thinking. I remember um, out on the muck in Imlay city here in Michigan, I was talking to some growers out there and they said every couple of years they'll be doing some tillage and they'll basically uncover a piece of a large tree just that's just been there since this was like a a floodplain Mm -hmm. for centuries and how the lignin is still there. And it was in this, uh, you know, until it was drained, it was a highly anaerobic saturated environment, which as Nick pointed out, slows down the microbial activity that creates organic matter, but like preserves it in a way. And so that Lignin was basically preserved sort of like, um, like a bog person in Scotland or something.
1: Yep. (laughs) Yeah, that is, we don't really have muck soils in Minnesota, at least that are used for agriculture. So that's like not something that most of us are familiar with, but like in Michigan, you know, parts of Ontario, you are probably all very, very familiar with like, it's a really bizarre Some of those concepts of how organic matter is stored. Cause you see yeah, it so clearly in the fields that you're working in.
0: Yeah. You, when you go through a, a wetland, that's still a functioning wetland, you don't even think about what the soil is really like, if it didn't have all the plants that it has and it wasn't yeah. drained or, or if it was drained. Uh, and then when it's drained, it's like, it's just, just pitch black soil that is super light and fluffy and blows away. Yeah. Uh, it feels like you're walking on the moon, almost like a black moon. It's really mm. weird stuff. Um, and it's always going away, which is the unfortunate part. Yeah. So it's just always blowing away. It's getting burned up by microbial activity. It's just always going lower, 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 lower. So yeah. as you and Nick talked about organic matter, like recontribution is on the minds of these muck growers all the time and cover crops are being yeah. employed to try to, to try to get some of the organic matter back. mhm So uh, another takeaway I had from Nick that I thought was interesting and I'd like to hear if you got this too, was he like really impressed upon me how, how, how different soils will take to management practices differently. And so to to use just the very basic metric of organic matter as some kind of um, like, like badge of honor across different soil types, isn't isn't probably as useful as we all think it is.
1: Yeah, there was one thing. It was a really brief thing that he said about how we maybe expect too much of our soils. Mm. And that really stuck with me because I think often, I guess I'm in a lot of conversations about climate resilience and working with farmers for like developing plans for their farms to be more resilient to climate change. And building soil organic matter is almost always in the top three priorities. And so there's this idea that like, we have to build organic matter because it's going to store nutrients. It's going to store water. It's going to allow us to better withstand bigger storms. And I think that idea that like, that's a lot of pressure to put on your soil Mm -hmm. is, is interesting to me, but like, there are so many other things we can be doing on our farms to, to do those things like planting rows of perennials to absorb some of that water and, you know, other, other kind of big picture strategies like that. But yeah. we put so much pressure on our soil to like do all of that work for us sometimes without maybe thinking of broader kind of like taking an ecology perspective and thinking mm-hmm. of like landscape level ways mm-hmm. to be resilient. So that's, yeah. I know that's not exactly what we talked about, but that's something I've been thinking about following this interview.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Nick mentioned how architecture of the soil and soil particle size has mm-hmm. uh, has an incredible impact um, on, on what you can do in a soil and not just what you can do, but how you can grow in different ways. And, or, and if you, if you're essentially, you're trying to take a soil that's super sandy and make it uh, a loam, or if you're taking a, a heavy clay soil and make it a loam, I mean, you're never going to get there. And I see mm-hmm. a lot of growers who are new or they've, they've just gotten some land and, <laughs> uh, they'll be a lot of Facebook groups that I'm a part of There's there's always some kind of preamble before asking for advice where it's like, got this property, the soil is terrible and we're improving it. Like, I mean, sure you're improved. I'm sure you you can improve it. Right. But if you think that you have to wait until it's improved to start.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: I don't think you're going to see the benefits that you're hoping yeah, because the soil is so, oh my gosh, it's like trying to Turn the Titanic or something versus a speedboat. Like you're just not gonna get it to move into the direction you Mm -hmm. want so quickly,
1: right? In the last episode, we talked about like the the Instagram farmers and like these kind of Mm -hmm. beautiful farms where they have like you know really fluffy, perfect beds and yeah. Rather than feeling like everyone should be getting to that point and like setting that as the standard, just better understanding the soil where you're at and like how you can work with that soil seems like a maybe more balanced approach.
0: Yeah. I mean, and as a quote that I've always resonated with. I don't know who, who said it, but it's style is defined by limitations. Mm. Like you're just going to have to develop a style. That's going to work with the limits that you have. You can only go so far to copy some other system and paste it right onto the land that you have. It's just,
1: right.
0: it's so the earth is, uh, a <laughs> It takes forever to get to the things that you have that you can observe in your lifetime. And to yeah. change them in your lifetime is, um, it could be an exercise in futility to yeah. think too grandly about what you can change. But
1: yeah, and it's still worth it. Like, if it, I don't mean to like you know <laughs> to hate on those farms too much. No, I'm not. I think I'm it's still a them. really worthy goal to like, yeah, you know, be using cover crops as much as you can. Be like. It'd be working towards that organic matter, but mm-hmm. yeah, to have more realistic expectations and think a little more broadly than just set a number.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to discourage some, I don't want to make people think, oh, it's hopeless. So I'll just till all the time. I don't think right. that's the answer either. Yep. I don't think that's the answer either. Right. Well, this was a great, this was a great set of talks you had here. I, I really enjoyed watching you go from the first episode, just thinking about what's up these hoop houses, uh, and that, and then following those leads and those questions with, with more people who knew different things and hitting it from all these different angles.
1: Yeah. It's it was really, fun really to have the, the platform series. and like the, the excuse, I guess, to really explore and <laughs> <laughs> take a deep dive. So Yes, yeah, it's
0: just an interesting format that allows us this kind of leeway and, and um, creative uh, time to to yeah. kind of get into things.
1: Definitely.
0: All right. Well, thanks, right. Natalie. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: That concludes this episode of the Vegetable Beat. If you'd like to check out all of our past episodes, head on over to glveg dot net slash listen i